Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Mike Rothmiller. And this will be our third discussion of his many books. Our first one was about an excellent book, which is really an international bestseller. The title of it is Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe. It was published in 2021. And he wrote that with Douglas Thompson, who I've also had on my show about his book, Stephen Ward's Scapegoat. So you can go back and listen to those two interviews. Highly recommend both of those interviews. Uh, our other discussion was about a two-part, really fascinating as a researcher, uh, really great research compendiums or, or books, two volumes titled Secrets and Lies and Deception. Secrets, Lies, and Deception. Top secret te presidential telephone transcripts, top secret, secret presidential letters, top secret documents and other amazing pieces of history. So there's two volumes to that. Uh, Mike Rothmiller has enjoyed a di distinguished career in law enforcement, working across U.S. federal and state agencies and with American and international intelligence services. He served for 10 years with the Los Angeles PD, including five years as a deep undercover detective with the Organized Crime Intelligence Division, OCID. Um, he's also a regular commentator on law enforcement and worldwide intelligence matters across America and throughout the world. He's a New York Times bestselling author of 23 nonfiction books. Some of his other titles are LA Secret Police, Inside the LAPD, Elite Spy Network, True Crime Chronicles, Volume 2, Serial Killers, Outlaws, and Justice, Serial Killer, Dr. H.H. Holmes Speaks. He tells his story from a prison cell. Also, Cayman Snakes and Lightning, Defying Death in the Amazon. But we're going to talk about this book. The title of it is something I'm really interested in, the kind of earlier pre-CIA stuff. The title of the book is OSS Top Secret Operations, Volume 1, Covert Missions of World War II. And Mike told me in the pre-show that there's going to be two more additional volumes to this. So uh, get ready for some more information. But a really fascinating book. A lot of stuff that I really wasn't aware of or didn't know of, but he can talk more about that. So Mike Rothmiller, Roth welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Awesome. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard our earlier two interviews, uh, can you kind of do an update? I know that Bombshell's really sold. People are really interested in the book. Maybe you can talk about that and what led you to write OSS Top Secret Operations. Sure. Well, uh, Bombshell uh, was a project that uh, actually started many, many years ago with uh, my interview or interrogation of Peter Lawford and seeing the secret files in LAPD and so forth. And so <clears throat> what I decided to do with Bombshell is tell the truth what happened, uh, because people have heard various stories through the years, and 90% uh, of them are completely off base. Uh, some are a little more accurate, but nobody knew what really happened. And uh, from the intelligence uh, that I gathered, working LAPD intelligence and their secret files, and speaking with uh, Peter Lawford, the guy who planted the bugs in Maryland's house and Peter's house and so forth, and some other people, uh, I decided it was time to tell the truth what really happened to her. So <clears throat> Douglas and I, uh, Thompson, got together and we wrote the book and it's been out since uh, July and it's a bestseller worldwide. Uh, just a few weeks ago, it became number one in France and there's no French edition, so that's still in English. Uh, the movie rights have been sold. It's been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in history. Uh, so it just keeps rolling along. And uh, recently, the audio rights have been sold in the United States and in England. So that will be coming out. 
within the next few months. Awesome. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. It's a great book. Highly recommended. Bombshell. And I mean, you've done you you have an Intel background. You've done a lot of books on this kind of topic. What led you kind of to uh, focus on the OSS? Well, the OSS has always fascinated me because when I was in the Army, I was put into an intelligence position. And uh, from that time forward, uh, over the years, I've gotten to know many, many flag officers, generals and admirals and so forth. Uh, that's because I served on the board of directors of the USO and so forth. And we've become very close friends. And uh, over the years, they've told me some things, you know, some very interesting stories. And I always had an interest in the OSS. So I got into the uh, National Archives and I found uh, written stories from the OSS that they wrote right after the war of all of their operations worldwide. And the successes that they had, the difficulties they had, and the failures they had. And I thought it was fascinating because it brought so much insight into intelligence operations during World War II, which 99% of the people don't know about. Uh, but also, it was the forerunner of the CIA, the OSS. And learning about how it came about, the need for it, and what they were doing, and it was quite amazing that within a short period of time, General Donovan formed this unit under Roosevelt, and he had worldwide operations going. They were training agents, uh, double agents, triple agents, uh, running espionage worldwide, and it was quite fascinating. And when I read all of this, I didn't read all of it, but I read much of it, I said, this is too good just to be collecting dust in the National Archives, which nobody's going to see. And so I decided to bring it out. I brought it out. Uh, I've gone through all of it, and I've re-edited some of the parts that uh, were a little bit difficult to read. I put punctuation in and so forth uh, to make it more user-friendly. But it doesn't represent anything flowery. Like if you read a spy novel, it will describe the sky and the moon, the shimmering, and the look of the car, this just cuts to the chase. And it talks about the various operations they had, um, how, what they were doing, why they were going into, say, occupied France or into the China and so forth, and what they were doing. And it just says, we went in to set up this operation. This is how we we're doing it. And it succeeded for X number of months or weeks or hours. And then our agents were all killed or we never heard from them again. And that's how it is. It just cuts right to the chase. And uh, it's just so fascinating to me because I, I enjoy this sort of stuff, reading about it. And I thought there are other people would enjoy it. And I said, a friend of mine, uh, her mother served in the OSS. And recently she brought me her identification card from the OSS. So and that's Mildred Mildred Jacobson, right? That's correct. Yes. So she's Mildred. right there in the book still. Yeah. Yes. And so uh, it's all so fascinating. And um, a lot of the friends that I have that are former high ranking military, I've discussed it with them some of the operations that went on. And uh, even though they've gone through West Point and all sorts of other areas and war colleges, a lot of they've never heard of the vast majority. And uh, they've heard of the major things like D-Day, Operation Torch, and so forth. But 
when it comes down to the smaller operations, maybe involving two, three, four, or 20 people, and also the undercover work done by the women, it's just fascinating um, to learn what they did. And uh, you learn about it because it was on a worldwide scale. But the only thing that came in to be a problem is General MacArthur didn't want the OSS operating in his theater of war. And that was all ego driven. He didn't want them doing something uh, that they could take credit for, that he would not receive it. And uh, so he forbid term, forbid them, says, you cannot come into my theater of operation and run intelligence operations. That was left up to him for the Navy intelligence, some army intelligence and so forth. Uh, so it brings a lot of the infighting out too that went on from the OSS position. They just lay it out. They don't say this guy's right, this guy's wrong, but these are the problems that we have. And it also lays out uh, a lot of the problems they had with various US ambassadors. Uh, one in particular was in Spain and uh, he got hold of the State Department and said he did not want uh, the OSS running any operations in Spain because he thought it would be bad. And uh, <clears throat> he was overruled, but uh, he fought for a long time to get all intelligence operations out of Spain. And here we are in the middle of a war and he's saying, no, I don't want intelligence operations going on. So the infighting uh, is really quite amazing when you read the story. Right. And I mean, Spain was neutral, right? So they didn't want to make the Spanish unhappy, but there's a lot of information to be garnered at that time from Spain or Portugal, right? Oh, absolutely. There's loads of information. Uh, they were gathering it everywhere because Germany was moving around. Japan was moving around. Italy was moving around. They're intelligence people. So you had to have people everywhere to pick up bits and pieces of information, especially when you get into North Africa, Egypt, and a lot of operations in Cairo, um, you just have to know what's going on uh, because you'll save a lot of people's lives or you can lose a war by not knowing the intelligence. Right, so there's a lot going on and, and FDR specifically asked Bill Don, William Donovan to get the OSS up and running, right? As, right, yeah, as he wanted him to become the coordinator of information um, and under that, <clears throat> he just kept spreading out, bringing more people in, more operations, setting up bases. Uh, first, the really first base set up in London uh, that they're operating from, and it just uh, expanded worldwide. And Donovan would get it in, and as time went by, he would refine it, what they were doing, and uh, send out more people for espionage in one location, one part of the world. Uh, in other parts, it would just be gathering information, uh, infiltrating German activities and so forth, or Jap uh, kind of Japanese activities too, when they got up into China and so forth. But it's just an amazing story that he was able to put this whole operation together, a worldwide operation, within a matter of months. And uh, at the time, he was a Brigadier General, that was it, and it was more of a civilian job as opposed to a military job. Uh, so prior to that, he had to coordinate with, there was only three other organizations really gathering intelligence. Some of that was Naval Intelligence, Army Intelligence, and then the State Department. 
and they were all kind of keeping the information to themselves and weren't really sharing it. His position was, give it all to me. Well, that's what the president's order was. Give it all to him. He will coordinate all of it. Get it to the president and get it out to anybody that needs it to further the war. So, it's, right. And you showed that flow chart in the intro to the book. You see it's pretty yeah. complex in its, in its design, at least in its inception. But he was under, the OSS was under the Joint Chiefs at that time. So, well, um, yeah, but, in a sense, and he was, uh, he set it up and um, was reporting primarily to the president at, at that time. So it, it's, it's just amazing story, but getting into this, the smaller operations, that's what is truly fascinating. And uh, there was one woman named uh, Virginia Hill, Virginia Hall, and um, she, early on in her life, she had a hunting accident. She shot herself, got shot in the leg. So she had a prosthesis and she could speak French fluently. So she joined the OSS and they sent her in to infiltrate into France when it was occupied by the Nazis. And uh, they knew she was there. The Nazis knew she was there and they kind of knew what she looked like, but she was setting uh, up espionage operations. She was really running it got up to maybe about 1,500, 2,000 people, little sales she was sending out to sabotage, to do espionage, and to uh, really make it difficult for the Nazis. And she would move around France. And what was interesting, she walked with a limp. The Nazis, the Gestapo, they knew she was a tall woman. She walked with a limp. She had a prosthesis, but they could never find her, which was truly amazing. But it, it shows how brave she was. Uh, because let's face it, you see somebody, especially a woman uh, at that time with a prosthesis, it, it gets your attention and it, other people will notice it. And if there was somebody who was uh, really, if you want to say helping out the Nazis, um, maybe was, and they're against the French underground, they're going to turn her in instantly. Say, I saw her at this farmhouse or whatever, but she was setting up radio stations to communicate with uh, England out of there, uh, back to their headquarters, and uh, she survived the war. She went off the road, survived, came back, she was highly decorated. But that's just one story uh, about her. And I one of many stories, you have many of those stories throughout oh, the yeah, dozens and dozens of them. Uh, I cannot find an actual number of how many women served in the OSS in clandestine operations. But there were many. Uh, that I think Ju I think Julia Childs was one too, wasn't she? In yeah, France, yeah, she, she I think she was an informant or something. Yeah, she, I think it was a well, she was in England uh, over there. Oh, okay. with her husband, I think, it was that she met some people and she started talking, and <laughs> then she ended up doing her cooking over there, a lot of cooking for people. But uh, <clears throat> some of the women actually went out when they were parachuted in to various locations whether it's france or parts of germany or italy or wherever the men would be on the plane the oss operators the agents as with some women that were also uh, oss operators and they would parachute in and uh, they would set up doing their operations and so forth and become for better term a spy and uh, report back through the, their chain whatever they had as far as connections with the underground and so for the radio operators. Uh, it was just fascinating. It's just fascinating. And it says 
another part of history about women that you don't hear about during the war. You hear about they're in the wax and the waves, you know, that sort of thing. But not, you don't hear too many stories about uh, women parachuting in to work undercover in the Nazi-occupied France. That's fascinating. They actually, women make really good spies. I've read oh, a lot do. of stuff like, yeah, they're, they, they're, they do. Uh, they're just as good as men. Yeah, there's one woman, uh, I don't recall her name, but she was a professional model uh, in New York, and she volunteered for the OSS, and uh, they got her into France and that area, and she was doing modeling during the war and got to know a lot of the Nazis, some of the generals really well, and they would spill their guts to her. Uh, she'd meet them in a, like a bar or someplace, and they'd get uh, liquored up and they'd start talking and then she would report all the information back. And so it, it's just, it's phenomenal when you, you read the stories, uh, what they did. And one story that uh, was really interesting to me is that uh, three OSS guys went into German, not German, into France, and they had to go from point A to point B. And they met with the French underground and uh, they said, okay, it's going to take you know, like two or three days, maybe, to get to that location, but it's all occupied by the Nazis. And so they were trying to determine what to do, how to get them there. So <clears throat> this one guy was a winemaker, and he had the huge wine barrels, like 50-gallon drums, and they put him in a, a truck, and he says, I delivered wine to the Nazis in the other germs. So he says, let's put some barrels on the truck. We'll have three empty barrels. We'll seal, seal you guys in the barrels, and that's how we'll get you there. And so, fine, if they were caught, they would have all been dead. And so they went the first day, no issues. They come up, they get through a German line, and the Germans are like, oh, just wine, sure, go ahead. So they go on. Uh, they spend the night in the forest. They get out of the barrels. They go out in the forest. They spend the night. <clears throat> the following day, they get back in the barrels, and they're going further to this other town that's loaded with Nazis uh, and they get a flat tire. And so they have this truck flat tire and here comes a Nazi patrol along. The Germans come along, they look at it and say, well, what's the problem? The guy says, well, we're taking all this wine to so-and-so uh, to your headquarters and that. And they say, oh, well, we'll help you. So they replaced, they got out the spare tire and replaced it for these guys. And they're inside the barrels in the truck. And so the Nazis fixed the truck for them so they could continue on. And uh, they went up, got where they were going, and uh, set up their radio operation, and it worked out quite well. Yeah, and that was kind of a common thing at that time, was getting this secret radio operation set up all over the place, right? Yeah, they had various ones uh, called uh, Jedbirds and so forth, some of the code names, which uh, I'll tell you now there's about a million code names, but I have a glossary in the back, about 25 pages of it, tell everybody what they are. But uh, they were taking small radios, but at the time, a small radio is actually quite large. And they were, in most cases, parachuting in to different locations. And then they would spread out from there. Uh, one guy would go north, another guy would go south. they take their equipment. They normally had maybe two people. Uh, one was the, for better term, the officer in charge. And then would be a radio operator, then another person to help out. And they would go to their location, generally a safe house uh, or a barn or something out in the woods, and they would set up and start transmitting. And uh, 
that went on all over the world. They would do that. And many times they're talking about how a, one of these guys, uh, these teams would report back it, throughout the war. They were very good. Other times it, they lost track and they just assumed they were captured and killed. Because uh, they said those people uh, were considered, which they were, you know, but they were considered spies. So if the Germans captured them or the Italians or the Japanese, they were basically torture them. If once they thought they got all the information out of them, if they got any, they would go ahead and kill them on the spot. Uh, but there's some other uh, interesting stories in there about one in particular was uh, these raid two guys, radio operators in this house. Uh, the Nazis finally found out where they're at and they raided the house. These guys had machine guns and they ended up killing some roughly 30 Germans soldiers before they came to the house. So what they did, it was a multi-story building. They decided to commit suicide instead of being captured. So they jumped off the building and uh, one died and the other survived for a while but uh it's just the dedication they weren't going to be taken alive uh right so, these are heroic guys i mean a lot of these i think bill colby was one too he was one of these jed burgers a lot of future spies too right oh yeah yeah ab absolutely so there's just uh, a wealth of fascinating stories like that and uh and about how they set up i've got my some notes here how they set up operations and various parts of the world um they had uh they ran into some issues at times with the british because the british did have a major spy operation going in intelligence gathering and the british they did want to share sometimes that the oss guys did want to share with them so they had to work out these issues between them um and at at times you know who who knows exactly what happened when they're having these conversations but they finally worked out. And then there were times where um, the British in different parts uh, of the world, they didn't want to necessarily share their information. Uh, they wanted to keep it to themselves. Um, even though the OSS was there, that's well, we're not going to tell you about whatever's going on in Tunisia at this particular time. So there's a, a if you want to say infighting, there's infighting between the two countries in some respects. But it eventually worked out. Um, they, like I said, and we discussed, they had uh, numerous clandestine radio stations. Uh, a lot of it was based in Casablanca for that part of the world. And people went out from there and they had dozens of code names. Uh, they got a few sheiks involved in the Arabian area. Uh, they helped them out. And uh, so it was. It's interesting because you get a little bit of that, uh, like Lawrence of Arabia involvement and everything else. And uh, it's just, it's it's fascinating. Uh, at least it is to me, and I'm sure it is to most people, but. They I think have, so. What's the, what's the famous movie there in Casablanca with. Uh, Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, Humphrey Bogart. That, I, I mean, that was. Casablanca, wasn't it? Right, but that was love. That was a rife with intrigue and spies and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, the Germans and everything else, but uh, it was. A, truly a hotbed uh, of what was going on. So uh, then they had other ones that were looking for, uh, they were using communists as agents. 
uh, and that was a lot they did in Latin America, Morocco, some in Mexico, uh, because the, the communists, the people that were diehard communists hated the Nazis and the Nazis hated them. So they were using some of these diehard communists as agents. And sometimes said they worked out, other times it didn't work out so well because they were too committed to their cause um, as far as communism to end up being a really good spy. Uh, so a lot of that went on. Um, didn't they they did a lot of stuff for the North American North African invasion so a lot of precursors supplying kind of local tribes with stuff deception operations making sure supplies went through all that stuff so yes yes they did and uh for Tunisia and that whole area and uh well Egypt uh all of North Africa and also the, some of they went down into Central Africa, but they had a, a really tough time because when they got down to like the Congo and that area, nobody really knew what was going on. <laughs> you know, they go out into the uh, outlying areas, and a lot of the people that were in family units and tribes, and they had no idea a war was going on. And so, what, what are you talking about? What's what's a German? What's a Nazi? What's a, what's this? What's that? So. Uh, they ran into problems there. Um, then they got into uh, a lot of the outlying areas, which you know, Spain, Portugal, uh, the Middle East, and uh, they had quite a bit of success there. And then they also were sabotaging a lot for counter espionage. If they knew, for instance, the Germans were going to try to uh, commit an act of sabotage somewhere, they would go and sabotage those guys before they had the chance to do anything. And uh, that was, th those things are pretty interesting. Um, there was one woman uh, I have here, no, they, her code name was uh, Vera. And uh, she set up a radio set uh, in Italy. She was one of the, for bedroom of Jedburg, she was radioing back information. She was uh, gathering intelligence. So uh, when the Nazis found out, they pinpointed where she was at, they went to raid the place. Uh, but just prior to that, one of the people she was using said, hey, we, we think this person's maybe not as trustworthy as we thought. So what they did, they took that person out. Some of her allies took him out and executed him because uh, they thought he was going to the Germans with their information. But uh, when the Germans came in, uh, they broke into a place, her and a radio operator were in there. Uh, they got, they were, gotten a huge gunfight. Uh, she was throwing hand grenades and they killed several of the Germans and uh, she was able to escape and she destroyed her radio and everything on her way out. And then they ended up joining a, another Patriot group, underground group, a few miles away. And uh, she made it out safely. But uh, here it is, you know, the, again, this woman, she's throwing hand grenades at him. She had a machine gun. She's shooting it out. And she uh, was able to destroy all her equipment. She got out of there. She escaped from the Nazis trying to hunt her down. And that was probably the Gestapo that was chasing her. But 
And that's kind of a recur recurrent theme with the OSS is supporting resistant move resistance movements all throughout Europe and the middle and the Mediterranean, right? Yeah, and over into China and every place else. That a lot of was supplying the underground with weapons and uh, also some intelligence. The underground was supplying them with some intelligence, but if they also had some that would be beneficial for an underground, say the French underground, to go out and destroy a train or whatever it may be, or go out and kill somebody that they know is uh, a spy for the Nazis, they would share that just that bit of information and they'd go out and get the work done. But uh, it's, it's truly amazing the bravery and the courage that these people, when they're in the field, that they would demonstrate. Um, I'm sure, you know, obviously it's happened uh, in other wars, but these people, it wasn't uh, under uniform, if you want to say uniform code of justice and laws and, and so forth, that they're out of uniform, that if they were caught, they knew they're going to be executed. So it's, it's quite an amazing story when you look at it. Right. And there's a, a different operations that they had, right? Torch, you mentioned, the Wujda operation. So these these different kind of, you know, this the beginnings of the intelligence, the international intelligence of the United States is doing these operations during World War II as well, right? Right. And uh, they were setting up uh, intelligence for, uh, for instance, D-Day. They were already over there gathering intelligence and then Operation Torch and so forth, going into North Africa, they had already, they were there and uh, they were helping map the area and they would go out, especially in areas like North Africa, where there weren't a lot of roads then and there really weren't accurate maps. They would go to the local herdsmen or the local sheik and so forth and they would find out where the wells were at, the natural springs and so forth, where there's water, where there's some food. Uh, what is beyond the next hill that they're looking at? Uh, and what's the ground like? Is it very loose sand? Is it firm and so forth? So they are gathering loads and loads of information like that uh, that would be beneficial when the forces finally came in. Because obviously there's some places they had tanks. You couldn't take a tank because of the type of soil. Uh, and they wanted to know that. So it was, beyond just knowing what was going on, they gathered a lot of information geographically uh, regarding the harbors, regarding landing beaches and so forth, which eventually aided all the invasions throughout Europe. Right, because they went from North Africa to Sicily to the southern part of Italy. So the OSS is getting their agents to give information about all that stuff, right? Right, the right. There's very little information uh, about that that they had at the time in the military. And it was even to the point where they were... Uh, trying to get highway maps out of, for instance, Italy, some old highway maps uh, that may be 20, 30 years old that they could use because they just didn't have that information. But the OSS would go in and if they needed to know where the highways were or the bridges and so forth uh, that they couldn't get from reconnaissance flying over, they would send them in there and they would uh, do the mapping and so forth and then uh, get it back. To London base. So right, so they're right, and so they're also kind of uh, involved in in supporting kind of the bases that are following this invasion uh, through the Mediterranean, too, right? 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, they were gathering a lot of information, too, on uh, the German submarines and so forth. When they were going in to port, when they were leaving, where they were staying, where, where they were docked and so forth. And uh, also on the airfields and uh, anything else they could come up with, any major movements of troops and so forth, they were sending back that information if they had it. So it was a very, very valuable resource that was completely undercover. Uh, even a lot of people, high-ranking people in the military didn't know what was going on as far as the OSS. Um, a, a theater commander like an Eisenhower would, uh, General Patton in the areas he was at, he would probably know some of it, but not all of it because they'd only send that information to the <clears throat> For a better term to the commanders that would be able to use that information but they didn't want to spread a lot of information around because if that person is captured they may spill it and so it was a need a right to know and a need to know situation then so it's uh it's it's it really was, something it's, else yeah. a lot of people don't know that story they don't they know the kind of cia or they overlap the cia at the world war ii but the CIA didn't exist until 47, right, under Truman. Yeah, yeah, because uh, after the war, uh, Truman disbanded the OSS. And uh, then it was a matter of setting up the CIA, making it to a new organization. And it was primarily made up of most of the people, a lot of people from OSS, obviously. They joined the CIA, uh, as did naval intelligence, army intelligence, and other ones from the State Department, they joined, and uh, it just expanded to what we have today. And uh, right. obviously, they grip, they grip, they get a lot of good information worldwide. They gather, and they've missed it a few times too. But uh, when you're dealing with intelligence, because I dealt with it, uh, you deal a lot in rumors, and uh, then you have to juggle that. Say, well, I've heard this. And this person's kind of saying the same thing, or it's close. So then you have to draw a conclusion of that information. Decide how are you going to approach it? Are you going to do anything with it, especially in wartime, or, or are you just going to let it pass by? Uh, right. And I and think that differentiate the OSS is under the Joint Chiefs, but then the CIA was kind of still an executive function, but separate. So it it detached itself from the military, right? Yeah, the CIA uh, theoretically became a civilian organization uh, under command of the president. And so then you get the other ones, the uh, NSA, which is military and DIA and so forth now. But there are many different intelligence organizations uh, compared at that time, uh, World War II beginning. We really had nothing uh, per se. I mean, it's still the country was still seen as young, which is really something else. Like yes, all these yes. other, Russia yes. had this huge intelligence. The uh, Brits also, but the U.S. strangely didn't have that kind yeah, of espionage and, capacity. Yeah, and you look at it, and uh, especially the the Brits, the British had their intelligence service for quite some time, and uh, they were very helpful in training a lot of the USS people and uh, telling them what to do and where to go and what not to do and you're going to get caught. And even today, with what's going on in uh, Ukraine, 
all the good intel was coming out of England, the British intelligence. They're the ones that really getting the, the most accurate intelligence going, uh, especially coming out of Russia. But, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing story when you get into it, uh, just with the World War II operations, and then that carries on, like I said, into the CIA and so forth. And it, it is quite fascinating. Really is. And when do you expect to have the other two volumes in the set uh, completed? Uh, well, volume one, like I said, just, just came out and it'll probably be another three months, I'm thinking, for volume two because I've got to go through so much information and redo things. And then plus, we're still dealing with the bombshell book. I got to do <laughs> interviews over that and that's taking time. And then uh, we're in the process, Douglas, of finishing the book on Frank Sinatra. Oh wow, cool. So Great. yeah, that has that's due middle of middle of April. Oh so, wow, soon. Yeah, oh, wow. and that will be out at the end of the year. Um, but that you've been busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that gets into things about Sinatra people have not heard. They've heard about some mob connections, but they don't realize how long and deep they were. So we're covering I just that. read a book about a guy who studied the Sands Casino. And Sinatra uh -huh. was uh, an investor with a lot of mobsters very early, very oh, yeah. early on in Las Vegas. Yeah, so, and uh, yeah. he lost, as you probably know, he lost his gaming license the first go around. And then uh, he came back and was trying to become, he did, he was aware of the gaming commission to become an entertainment consultant. And uh, they gave it to him. But, uh, from the sources that I have, or they found out why they gave it to him because uh, a guy, a very influential fellow on the gaming commission uh, had a meeting with Sinatra's, one of his close friends, longtime friend in Nevada, who happened to be an attorney. And there was an exchange of gifts. Uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden this commissioner decided he was a great guy and I'm voting for it. And so uh, oh. we're bringing out a lot of that. Interesting. Yeah. No, that's fascinating, that early history. So I look forward to reading about that. Mike, where's the best place for people to get this book, OSS Top Secret Operations? Uh, Amazon, Amazon's by far. It eventually be on uh, Barnes & Noble, but Amazon is by far the best. And then if people want to reach out to you, you have a website, don't you? I don't have it in my no, notes. No, I don't. Okay. Maybe <laughs> somebody place, else. Uh, if they want to do that, they go through uh, my literary agent in London. Andrew Lonnie and uh, oh, right. type that into Google search and uh, he will come up and anything that's he receives, he forwards to me. Great. And I've talked to Andrew twice too. So I've yeah. had a lot of people you're friends with uh, talked about their books. His book was <laughs> the Mountbatten's and I think it was about uh, Prince Edward the fifth. I can't that was my, Andrew's book, wasn't it? The one he wrote? Yes. Yeah, yeah and really exactly. good. Mount Baden's was fascinating. I did not know that much about them, but yeah, he was an yeah. interesting character. And then uh, Douglas and I, too, what we've been working on a true crime book, uh, just like my other two true crime chronicles were, but based in the UK. And uh, so we got great. So that will uh, probably be out in six months, but we're just finishing mm -hmm. that, too. But uh, it gets into a lot of things, and what is interesting is that uh, we found out 
through some old, old archives, what happened to Jack the Ripper. So, oh, wow. Wow. so that's going to be well, that, a book too. That will be a good one. I mean, that's a fascinating story. Jack the Ripper is a whole nother one. So, Oh yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Different. Well, it's great to talk with you. You sound like you're very busy. So I'm looking forward to seeing some of the stuff that you put out later on this year. Again, the author's name is Mike Rothmiller, and the book is OSS Top Secret Operations Volume One Covert Missions of World War II. And it'll be a three volume set. So look out for these other two following books. But Mike Rothmiller, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Right, take care. Stay there. Stay there.